1: Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hello, Dr. Joy.
0: Hello, Dr. Amy. How are you?
1: I am doing well. We are going to be talking about some near and dear topics, theory and practice.
0: Our favorite topic. (laughs)
1: Yes, but really where they intersect, and I'm uh, excited about this discussion. We are going to be focusing on preparing and retaining teachers, but really sometimes the theory falls apart when you're pushed into the practice.
0: Right, and especially when you get in emergency mode. So often when I do professional development with in-service teachers, and you present something and they say, oh, I know that, I remember that, but they're not practicing it in the classroom. And it's like, what happened? Emergency, they went into emergency mode. I equate it to like, if you're learning to type, you know, for those of us who learn to type and you do the keyboard, once you know the keyboard, you can increase your speed. But now people, you know, they don't know the keyboard, so they just type you know, using their fingers and you can only go so fast. And when you're put upon pressure, once you start doing that, things start to fall apart because you're not putting that best practice that you've learned into place, you know, that can help catapult you to make you go faster. So they get into an emergency mode, especially with classroom management. And they forget about those things in theory that they learned that they really could put into practice. And so I'm happy that we're going to have this conversation and have it with someone who knows this best and sees it firsthand every day.
1: Absolutely. Dr. Jeremy Coleman is the principal of Brookview Elementary School in Indianapolis, Indiana. Dr. Coleman has taught and led in public schools for nearly 20 years. He started his career of service as a youth mentor and has served as a correctional officer, coach, teacher, and administrator. He has consulted for private and public schools on a range of topics, including school climate and classroom culture, parent and community engagement, and school leadership. He has partnered with the National Organization of Black Chemists and Chemical Engineers to deliver cutting-edge STEM programming to students in elementary, middle, and high school. So welcome to our podcast, Dr. Coleman. I am so excited to see you today and you can share more about what you are doing.
0: And Dr. Jeremy, we have so much in common, you know, the whole teaching, administrator, all of that, but you would never guess that we have correctional officer in common. Amy is probably saying, what? But uh, (laughs) I lived in Huntsville, Texas. I moved there to finish my degree. And I was living in Huntsville, Texas, which is a prison town. In one town, it has 11 prisons. Mm -hmm. So where do you get a job? (laughs) At the prison. So I was a correctional officer right after graduating high school. I was a correctional officer the length of the summer. <laughs> that was my <laughs> extent. I went through the entire training in Fort somewhere, learning how to shoot a gun, all of that. And I, my stint of career in corrections was three months, all of three months. That's all I could last. So God bless you. But we have a lot in common. And so glad you are where you are now, where you are meant to be. (laughs) Can you talk to us about your path to education?
2: Yes, certainly. Hello out there to all the listeners. It's such a just a pleasure to be on this podcast. And it's always good to be in conversation with fellow educators. I want to start by saying that everywhere I go, I just, it always is good to be in conversation with educators. So w- what I'll start with is just by sharing a very quick a story, if you will. There's a story of the two people walking by a river when they noticed children in the water, screaming, crying for help, floating down the river. One of those walkers jumps in the river immediately, doesn't even think twice, jumps in grabs the child, brings the child back to shore. The other walker turns and begins to run in the opposite direction. When asked where that person was going, they stop and say, wait, I'm going to see who's throwing these children in the river. So this, this story really is instructive about our response to what our kids are going through. And there is no wrong response. In, in one case, the person jumped in a river. I imagine, Dr. Joy, you felt like there was a, a real serious need to hop in the correctional facility pipeline to serve those those people there. Like you, I felt a similar need, and uh, I was working in the youth corrections, actually, so I felt like it was pretty uh, dire. But like the other walker in the story, I changed over time and thought I would go find out what's happening to kids before they got thrown in the river. See, so that that was important for me. And so, uh, Dr. Amy, I would add that for me, it was important to say, what is this start? What happens to our children as early as five years old that sets up these outcomes? So for me, it's always been about how to serve kids and empower adults. Well,
1: that leads me into what I want to ask is, Tell us a little about your school district and why you choose to serve where you serve.
2: It's a great question. You know, every year when I train my staff, we always begin with the session and I pose two critical questions. I always ask, do you know who you teach and do you know why you teach? So to answer your question, the why for me is very, very simple. It's 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 personal. Three Coleman men, two felonies. Three Coleman men two have felonies. I quote unquote made it out. Well, if you take those statistics and that percentage and you scale up, that's a horrible percentage. The the singular story of the one who made it is not good enough. So it's personal for me because I want to change outcomes for a large group of kids not just be happy about the one or two who made it out so my why is because I know there are kids who have tremendous potential who don't have that connection and don't have that caring adult to change their outcomes and so the who is also important Dr. Amy you mentioned where I teach Uh, I serve and I always have in in predominantly uh, low wealth uh, high poverty areas And for me, it's important because I know these kids have potential. I know they have the ability. They just need that that, that caring adult to help them unlock it.
0: You know, we're dealing with a huge teacher shortage right now, and I know that you're feeling that too. Most schools are feeling that because we have less people that are coming into the field. And part of that, there's still great people that love the teaching field but we're talking about individuals who are bright enough to do a lot of different things. So they have a lot of choices, you know? So what talk about your retention rate where you are, what are you doing to retain your teachers? And I have a, this is a two part. So let's talk about that.
2: So the first part is retention. So you're right. You're hundred percent. Right. There There are many other careers that you could embark on that are better paying, better hours, less stress. But here's the word that I challenge anybody to match up for an education, impact. Mm -hmm. You've got money, you've got the status, but do you have the impact? And I think every profession for every field, it all comes back to education. We all go through the K-12 system. We so are
0: all, we all touched by education.
2: Right, hands down. So the level of impact that we have is tremendous. And so I would say how we retain at, in my district and in my school, it's a multi-pronged approach. It's not just at the building level to answer a question. So you gotta have a district that believes in quality compensation and not just the hourly rate or the salary, talking about the benefits package as well, that's important. You also gotta have a district and a school that supports, uh, and this work is talked about a lot, but self-care is super important. Can I just be lip service? Uh-huh. It has to be in your policies. It has to be in your practices as well. And so one thing that I've done at, at my school, when I first got here, I created a sunshine committee and they had one job Dr. Joy, Dr. Amy, that job was to have fun with staff, right? Create opportunities for staff to have fun. So one thing that we do, it, it seems small, but it pays dividends. Staff birthdays, the committee goes and they go to the classroom, they decorate that teacher's door. And when they walk in that morning and they see their door decorated, it's just an extra ounce of joy.
0: Yeah, that atmosphere makes a big difference.
2: Correct. And so that's kind of what we do. We focus on, The teacher, and we understand that, look, the book title is true. If you don't feed the teachers, they'll eat the kids.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, we know that. So we try to do things that are fun, collaborative. And then two, you know, this isn't necessarily what's going to make the paper. But I want to share something that, that my district does that I think makes a lot of sense. We've changed the way we do professional development. You know, it used to be that you go to a room and you sit and get for an hour each week, every week. What we've done is kind of redesigned our process and we let teachers choose their own path of development. And throughout the year, those teachers check in with their leaders and they talk about their plan. But teachers have time to get developed in a way they want to be developed, be it, you know, podcasts, videos, other resources with other teachers, collaborative, individual, and the choice is theirs. And I believe that autonomy. It's going to pay dividends for us in the future because people are professionalized and they feel like they have uh, control and voice and choice in their careers.
0: Two things that you said, because Amy and I were always collecting good tips on how to retain teachers and we're putting something together so that we can share this because there's lots of great ideas. So, but two things that resonated with me, you said, have fun. You know, it's already a high-pressure job. We know what teachers do. I think having fun goes a long, long way. You know, one of the things that I used to do with my teachers was about their attendance. Because attendance sometimes can be sketchy, especially on a Friday. And I would do breakfast any day that there was perfect attendance. And so they would all tell each other, you know, I'm due for some breakfast, you know, everybody make (laughs) sure you come to work because I can make a run to Panera Bread and spend a hundred bucks, but it's going to cost me $150 for every sub that I have to get for that day. So I was saving money by feeding my teachers, literally (laughs) feeding my teachers, I mean, because they love to be appreciated. They knew what the salary was when they took the job. So beyond that, they like to be appreciated. You can do fun things with them. The other thing, point that you made was treating them as professionals. I mean, they've gone to school. They've really home, trying to hone their craft. And for you to treat them like professionals, making sure that they have professional development, making sure that they have continuous growth, and, you know, you're just respecting them. As an educator, it goes a long way. So kudos to you for doing those things. I just want to make mention of that. So, so the second part of that question is about replacing teachers. And it's difficult, you know, when you're losing great teachers and you have to replace them, it costs money to replace mm-hmm. them. And now you have to bring them up to speed and just so many things. What is your process for replacing
2: teachers? It's a great question. And I wanna answer it by first just sharing a part of my philosophy. We know teachers come and go. You're typically gonna lose talent because in many cases, you'll have great teachers who move up and become instructional coaches or administrators. So you kind of expect to lose excellent teachers. But the philosophy is this, what type of systems do you have in place to A, support new teachers, what kind of mentoring do you have, and what kind of school practices and protocols do you have that make the incoming staff feel welcome and feel up to speed, so onboarding. I think that's where you start. You gotta make sure that those systemic things are in place and then you can deal with the new stuff. So I lose teachers every year for various reasons. And when you hire new people, I don't always see this, Dr. Joy, as necessarily a bad thing because if you hire well, you're adding new talent to your team. You're adding diverse ideas, diverse experiences. And even when you hire a first year teacher, I think the level of optimism there is sometimes their greatest asset. They just don't know they haven't done it. So they bring just barrels and barrels of enthusiasm. So I don't always see it as a net loss, um, but I would say, systems are super important. Onboarding, how you develop, how you onboard people becomes more important in the long run. If that answers your question.
1: You know, when you were talking about that self-chosen PD, that there is that price to pay that teachers will self-select to develop talents that will move them into administration or other roles, but I think the benefits, like you said, can really outweigh those costs, even whenever you're trying to hire in new teachers. So let's talk about new teachers for a moment. What are you seeing with new teachers and what are they grappling with right now?
2: First, I got to just express my absolute love of new teachers. I love first-year teachers, okay? And it really goes back to I can remember vividly my first year in the classroom. I had so much fun. I mean, I was there till 7.30 at night, but I had a blast. I mean, to have my own classroom was so much fun. So the first thing I'll say about new teachers, the number one thing without a doubt that they deal with is challenging behavior. Number one, because you cannot replicate that in pre-service. You cannot replicate the speed at which five-year-olds move. You cannot replicate the frenetic pace at which kids pepper you with questions, comments, and weird requests. They're six. They're seven, and they have beautiful imaginations, and they let you have it all at once. So, how do you create that in pre-K? It's hard to do. So, for first-year teachers, the first month they're just adjusting to the pace. They're adjusting to the demands. And I know that I send, you know, weekly newsletters and emails and we have PDs, but I know they're not absorbing all that information. So what we do is we make sure we have spaced, not spaced practice, which is a great teaching technique, but like spaced touch points. You know, you want to make sure you have that August meeting, but you want to make sure you come back and have that September meeting when they can breathe. And then by October, Dr. Amy, I can tell with, by the look in their eye. That they can hear what I'm saying. In all this, they're just nodding. And they're nodding because, man, they're tired. They're giving it their all, but I know they're not absorbing it. So we just make sure to have space touch points to make sure the repetition sinks in.
1: Let, yeah. me, let me follow up on that. Because what you're talking about is, in college van theory. And yep. now it's practice. Oh, yeah. Now, would you say it is, it's more of a clash or do you think it's an intersection between those two, between theory and practice?
2: I mean, that's, one, that's a great question. And I know that's the uh, podcast purview. So, I mean, hey, what a great segue, right? <laughs> um, I think it's both, though. I think there are moments where those butt up against each other. But I also know there are moments where those do intersect beautifully. So let me give you an example of each. So here's the clash. In class, my professor told me X, but in my classroom, that doesn't work. Right. That's where yeah. it clashes because they that's see immediately, clash. right? That's right. Dr. Joy day one, they told me this, but yeah. I'm seeing it immediately. My kids are not responding. So that's where the clash happens.
0: Absolutely. So Amy and I, Dr. Amy and I had this conversation yesterday about a candidate and where this candidate was going to do their clinical experience in the fall and the spring. And here we're saying to each other, no, they have the same type of population. So no, it's not diverse enough. We can't put them (laughs) in student teaching knowing that they've had the singular population. It's Absolutely. not diverse enough. We're not going to put them in a position that when it comes time to teach that, oh, I've never been exposed to ELL students. Oh, I've never been exposed to this ethnic group of students. So we want to try to build as many diverse experiences because it's, it's important, right? We can't do everything. So we do a lot of theory. We can't do everything in practice as a pre-service teacher, And everybody's situation is different. We find that with the content test. When the candidates are taking their content test for licensure, it's based on theory. But it depends on where they got their experience from. So when it asks you that question about, you you have this child with special needs in your classroom and they give you the scenario and who you're going to talk to and what are you going to do? Well, depending on what school you go to, A lot of that might fall on you. And so you're answering wrong. You know, you don't have a director of special education. You don't have these resources. It really does depend on who you serve. And you have to know who you serve. And you can take that theory as your baseline. I mean, just like you're cooking. If I cook a bake a cake and Amy bake a cake, it's not going to taste exactly the same. Because we both know the principle of cooking. They both will turn out okay. They'll well both maybe. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah, I don't think she, I does. Can she, she does a really good job. But okay. you know, they both will be good and they'll they will at least look like a cake.
1: Yeah.
0: But it has to be, you know, she brought in a cake for people who couldn't have what, dairy products or something that you brought in. It couldn't have flour, you know, so you're accommodating it. For whoever your audience is, I couldn't start teaching during the day until I fed my kids. When I started teaching, I had a low salary and all I could afford was a box of Cheerios. And that's what they had in the morning because, in order for me to reach them, I had to serve their needs. You talked about spaces, having the space and opportunity to grow. Can you talk about that more? And what does that mean? look like because we like to we, we have partners and we like to engage your teachers and administrators and then at some point it seems like to us the bottom falls out where they don't have time for us anymore they don't have time for research they don't have time for this because it's busy in a school in a yeah. p12 school it's busy you know you don't have office hours like you do at the university mm-hmm. so so how do you provide these opportunities and spaces
2: for them to build on their theory yeah i mean it's a great question Um, i want to just make sure i know part two of dr amy's question i'll come back to that for you so please remind me it it was where where theory and practice intersect and i want to come back to it because i don't want to asperse teacher prep programs too much because i I know there's value in that so i do want to come back to that but how do we create space for teachers to collaborate for teachers to to plan if I'm hearing the question right. So the teacher prep has been seriously infringed on. I mean, for my teachers, and you work a six and a half hour day and you get a 40 minute prep, but we know that that's not enough to do all that you have to do. So I would say the way we really empower people to get developed or to continue development is we provide it in various ways and platforms. Because it isn't just the idea that you have to come sit in the room and hear me talk to be developed. There are many methods and many platforms to receive that. So we try to vary opportunities for teachers to get that. But also I think one thing that principals can do for principals in the audience is just be mindful of how you use preps and team meetings and, and instructional time and meeting time. Because a lot of things that I say that I can put in the email, I put in the email and things that are, that are action items, I can put in my weekly newsletter. So I do that to, to protect uh, the time that we have together. And I wanna save that just for development. I also wanna let teachers know that based on your experience, our interactions will change. For example, my first year teachers will, will see me lead a bit more. I may say more in our meetings. I may prompt more of the meetings because I think they need that. They're learning the profession. And there's a a bit of study that goes with that. But my experienced people, they lead, they talk more than I talk. I listen more than I talk because they need different pushes and different challenges. So I think those two things together, I think would really be a good start for school leaders to think about in terms of building capacity and and empowering teachers to development.
1: I think that trajectory, I think sometimes we might forget that experienced teachers do need to take the lead in conversations and because at some point they know what kind of development they need and that's very admirable that you you allow that space I want to ask about in in kind of pushing this conversation with theory and practice what do you see playing out with the different paths to becoming an educator. For instance, we might see the traditional path, the four-year college path, where they do the student teaching. But I also have a lot of career changers. So what is that like in your experience?
2: Yeah, I think those two things are definitely a part, I would add. Um, So the transition people, and I've got people in my building who their first career was not education. Myself, my first career was not education. I was a journalism major, but so I didn't even do the pre-service myself. I mean, I was in journalism at first. And then as Dr. Joy will know, my first job, at a, I was a correctional officer, too. So how did I end up here? Right. So there's going to be that. Then you have your people who've always known they wanted to teach and all that. But I think to add some detail to your question, I just had a conversation with my superintendent about this. I think the important thing is to keep multiple pathways because you may have people fresh out of high school who want to teach. And I think states have to be creative in how they provide space for people to join this, this team, because many people will say, but wait, Dr. Coleman, if you're talking about high school people getting certified to come teach in schools, they're not ready. They don't have the training. And how about those who have four years? And I'm like, look, I'm not saying either, or I'm saying, and, and it's going to be important because it isn't just about one pathway to get there. Our kids need people that care, people that want to do the work. And however they come as a principal, I welcome that. I mean, the past will be different. And if you come out of high school, you won't have the same level of technical training as someone in a four year. But there's space for you. If you got the will, I can give you the skill.
0: You can be honest. I know sometimes when you hire new teachers, you say, what university did you come from? I know that that happens.
2: Yes, it does. It does. What do
0: you see as some of the big challenges? This is what's going to help us okay. in terms of preparation between this newbie that you see come in and practice. They're new, they're excited. So yeah. what do you see is that big difference between that preparation you know, the new teachers coming in and your seasoned teachers.
2: <laughs> Excellent question. The first thing I'll do is I'll give you kudos, Dr. Joy. You mentioned something earlier that was just music to my ears. The way you are intentional about the experiences you provide for your students. You said it. You said, look, I know this student has only had a very homogeneous experience. Let me be intentional about putting them in a different space. That means everything. Because to me, that experiential learning is very powerful. And when you expose them to different types of students in classrooms, I think that gets them ready almost more than anything you can say. And again, I love theory. And I'm not going to argue against that. But I think experiential learning is very powerful, especially in the teaching field. So what would I tell you guys about what teachers need. The first thing I would say is this, that there has to be both planning and instruction. So Mm -hmm. both are important. I have a poster in my room and it says the best classroom management is great instruction. And I mean that like people think, oh, can I hear about classroom management? And I'll say, yeah, show me your plans. Show me your lesson plans. (laughs)
1: Show me your bell to bell instruction and I will show show you good classroom management.
2: Show me what are (laughs) students doing? Are you on stage all class? Uh Are you doing the cognitive lifting or are they? And if you're talking the whole time, I can predict what problems you're going to have because kids are checking out. They aren't engaged. They don't feel connected. So in teacher prep programs, there has to be a premium placed on not just planning for planning's sake, but planning that puts the cognitive load on the students and gives them chance to use, to interact, to connect. That to me is what what would prepare teachers uh, the best for my kind of school.
0: Yeah, we've seen the benefits of that. Amy has a teacher immersion programs where she has her candidates in a school for a year prior to student teaching. And it it just makes all the difference in the world and connecting with students, connecting with other teachers and being comfortable in that space. It makes it makes a huge difference. The more experience they can get Mm -hmm. on, okay, here it is in theory. Let me see you practice it and let me see you practice it right away. Not three, two more, three semesters away from now.
1: And you've said something else, that cognitive load, and sometimes that can be extremely heavy, like actual weight. I have a colleague who asks her candidates now which which should be more worn out at the end of the day? The teacher who is like barely able to drag to the car at the end of the day, or the or the child who's just bound down the halls and most just like, definitely. When I
0: started teaching Amy, I couldn't believe that I got paid for this. I needed the money, but I was like, I can't believe I get paid for this because I made them work. It was fun for me and it was a lot. It was fun and work for them. I made them work.
1: <laughs> and that's not always the case where the cognitive load, you feel like, well, I know the information and I need to pass that information on to the students but they need to know how to find the information. And so shifting that load to the students really will pay off, especially in the classroom
0: management sense. Yeah, You know, I, can I like add to decorating. That. So if we're doing perimeter area, all of that, by the time they finish, they will have helped me deck budget and decorate my house.
2: <laughs> and that to me is the best teaching, right? If I could add to what you were saying, Dr. Amy, look, n- not, not, not only is it necessary, but it's critical. So I would add the word critical. If your students are not doing the work, then we have a problem. Here's kind of how I say it. It ties to teacher burnout. It ties to teacher retention. Some people mistake what happens in the classroom for this isn't a career for me. And I think that's the mistake. It isn't that this isn't a career for me. It's that you're you, you have to change your approach. You're worn out. As you guys said, who should be more tired? Teachers who are new to the field, they think they should leave worn out. And it's not true. You need to put the ball in the hands of your students and let them, here's how I tell my new teachers. So we started school this year in July. And I had uh, pre, a meeting with my teachers before school started. And I said, here's the best way I can explain it to you. Imagine you were the coach on a basketball team and your players were there for practice in the gym. And I said, what is the best way to teach them how to shoot? A, let them watch you take shots for an hour, or B, put the ball in their hand. And I mean, it's so simple, it's fun to, and they laugh, but I'm like, you laugh, but when I come it, to your classroom- It
0: is simple, but here's the truth. <laughs> they need both, right? They do need that first part because they need to see The stand of that teacher, you know, the fundamental of that practice, you know, that exercise and say, okay, I I have a visual. I can do that. Yeah. But Mostly they have to practice it while the teacher gives them feedback. Absolutely. On how to improve. I always ask my students this trick question. I say the more I assess you, the more you will learn. And then most of them say, no, that's not true. There's too many tests. There's this, that's not true. And I said, yeah, it's true. The more I assess you, the more you will learn. I'm not talking about a test or a quiz Mm -hmm. or a portfolio because there's lots of informal assessments, me watching you, me giving you feedback. So the more I assess you, the more I can give you feedback on how to improve. So it's really putting it on the students so that you can help them grow being a facilitator. So here's if I were wanted to come to your school to work.
2: <laughs> come on, bring tell it.
0: Me, tell me what you are looking for in a teacher that would serve your community best aside from the fact that I would have to start in July. That
2: yes. that's hard and I know. <laughs> when do you guys start? Uh, August, late August.
0: Well, yeah. And I'm in administration. I never stop. But yes, yeah. the college students, they start late August, close to Labor Day. <laughs>
2: oh, man. The, right. I mean, I, I remember those days as a kid, right? After Labor Day. Yeah. Uh, what would you need to have? Who would you need to be to come work at my school?
0: Yes. What are you the looking first, for?
2: The first thing is this. You got to be heart first. Some people are me first. Some people are head first. You got to be heart first. Because heart first means you're here for, and I won't say right reason as a moral judgment. I'll say you're here for the reason that will sustain you. See, in my school, most of my kids do a great job. 90% of my kids have never had a referral, office referral. Most of them have not. So those aren't the ones that get you. It's the 10% that have all the referrals, it's not many of them, but they need the most intense coaching. They need the most second chances to get it done right. They need the most support. So those are the kids who will make you question why you're teaching in the first place. And if you're your heart first, your, your, your response to their misbehavior is, man, I wonder what's making you upset. I wonder what skills you need to get this done. What deficits might be in there that can help you out with? Those are questions that heart first people ask. And if you're not heart first, you'll see that kid in the wrong way. And it's going to ruin how you engage with the class. So I would just say heart first to begin with.
1: We are talking to Dr. Jeremy Coleman. And we're talking about heart and teacher retention and Really, about theory and practice as well. Now, you were talking about having heart first, and teachers have to know why they're in the classroom. And it has to be a pretty strong why, I would say. I was just leading an orientation with student teachers last week, and I asked them to write down their why. But Wouldn't you say that the reason why someone is in the field can vary in the strength? And I would say it's got to be pretty strong in order to overcome some of the obstacles that, that you describe. Would you say, I don't know, when someone's taking different pathways to becoming an educator, are there certain pathways where you are where you might see that strong why? And you know, talk about that a little bit.
2: Hundred percent, yeah. I mean, I think, and I'm not biased because this was my pathway, but I think the first people that come to mind are the transition folks, the folks who 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 came to to education from a different career. And I think about them first, not in that their why's are usually the strongest, but it's like. When you think about what you wanna do after you've had experience, you have a broader base to draw from to make a decision. And again, for those of you people who knew in college that you wanted to teach, I'm jealous. I wish I had known that, right? I mean, a, there's an amazing benefit to knowing in undergrad that you wanna teach. But, but I do agree with you though in the end, ultimately it really doesn't matter what pathway you, 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 you choose to arrive in the classroom or in the school, the, the whys will vary. And there is no, no right why. The reason why we talk about why, it's more of an introspective exercise. It's more of a, I want you to get in touch with your reason. And they don't have to share it with me. They got to reflect on it because it's what you come back to in November and December when at 6 a.m. it's dark outside. And when you leave, it's five thirty, and it's dark outside. I feel like it's never light and the kids are challenging and the workload is overwhelming. And that's when it gets tough. And that's before you hit that nice little stretch before spring break that we all know about that gets really tough. So in those moments, I need to know that you understand what's going to sustain you through that because it won't be the money. Dr. Joy mentioned this earlier, you know, teachers don't come to teach to get rich. And we all know that it has to be something else. And typically when you talk about why that usually gets at what will be predictive in terms of why people stay. I'll put it this way, Dr. Amy, if somebody tells me they always wanted to be a teacher and I say, well, why is that? They say, because I just love classroom organization.
0: Well, the wrong school can make you rethink that. (laughs) As I think about my why, one of the things you said, you know, you wish you had wanted to be a teacher first. You know, I like that I had some, and I'm sure you do too. I like that I had some experiences before becoming a teacher and there's no one right way, but I've seen lots of benefits when you do have other experiences Mm -hmm. And it's something through reflection and through your experience where it's an aha moment for you. For me, it was something that I discovered that I was good at, you know, when I changed professions. And I was like, oh, I can do this. I see the impact that I'm having by teaching. Didn't even know I was a teacher. And so it was something that I saw in me and an impact that I could see that I wanted to share with others.
2: Yeah. And also I would add, in a in a broader sense, I would argue American culture could be, could be indicted for its love of youthfulness and its almost aversion to experience and age. But like you said earlier, I see a, a clear difference when, when students who are fresh out of college have to handle certain parent situation, for example, versus someone who has lived and has experienced because that's another element that we don't talk about a lot. And I'm not sure what you guys do in teacher prep with parents, but we got to talk about that because I think that adds an additional stressor to teachers. And the reason I know that is my parents, they, they tend to be engaged in a particular way. And it may come off as abrasive or confrontational. And I got teachers who are just not prepared for that level of interaction. And so what usually happens is, you know, wires get crossed, miscommunication happens, and now the parent ends up being more offended than when they started. And I think this is just a failure to understand intention, a failure to understand the moment. And I find teachers with experience usually do a better job of judging it and not taking it personal. It isn't about me. It's about the child. I want to take myself out of it. But my young ones, my first years, kind of struggle with the idea of they feel attacked. And they use that word a lot. If a parent is critiquing their practice or questioning a decision, that feels like an attack. Whereas my people who transition, we don't have those conversations typically because they understand it's not personal. That's just one example.
1: Now that we're talking about the kind of preparation that would best prepare teachers. You were talking about just understanding parents and having that experience with parent-teacher conferences. Are there other tips that you would give us as teacher preparation providers to get them ready for day one in the classroom?
2: Yes, I would say simulate it as many times as possible. Simulate and script. Here's why I say that. People on the outside of our profession don't really understand the inner mechanics. And in general, people think excellence is some big to-do or some showy occasion. It's not, and you guys know this from the research. Excellence actually is pretty mundane. It's usually a confluence of individual skills or activities that you learn and you do them over and over again. Nothing extraordinary about it, nothing superhuman about it, except the fact that it's done consistently and correctly over time and I think my young teachers don't understand that that's it it's not anything that's Mm -hmm. philosophically esoteric it's the same good practice on Monday on Tuesday on Wednesday and we add fun to it because we love our jobs but essentially good teaching is good teaching and it always has been and always will be so I think for teacher prep programs stimulate it Let them script what they're going to say so they can own the moment. And I think this comes from comedy, but if you guys ever watch uh, comedy, comedians talking about about having what's called a tight 10. And it's a 10-minute part of their show that's just really tight. And that's where you start. You get a tight 10 first, and then you build on from that. So your popular comedians who have hour-long specials, they didn't start by having a great 60. They started with a tight 10. So what I want new teachers to do is develop a tight 10. From the moment your reading block starts, do you know what you're saying? What are kids doing? Where are they moving? What's happening in the first 10? You own the first 10. You see that happening in your room. Now we can move on to the next part. And the more confidence you get, the more experience you get. But that can happen in teacher prep by simulating and scripting.
1: This is fantastic. Yes. I'm going to capture those five minutes and share them with my candidates, it doesn't seem to matter how much I say, now you need to have a bell ringer and you need to make sure your students know exactly what they're doing. Whenever they walk in the door, there will be no bell ringer on the lesson plan that they turn in. And hearing that from you, from another source, from the person who could potentially hire any of our candidates, it's so valuable to get that reinforcement and say, it really does work. I'm going to call it something besides bell ringer. How about tight 10? That's...
2: Hey, call it a tight 10, Dr. (laughs) And then if you do that, though, I think what it does is it... So when you say it, your your students do hear you, but again, theory and practice, right? They don't think it translates and it absolutely does. So when you make them script it forces them to really interact with every second of their instruction. They're thinking about it. Oh, I'll just walk into a room. This will happen. And they take for granted that kids are not static. They are dynamic, especially in elementary. And sometimes they're not passive participants. They're active. And if you don't have a tight 10, they're going to run your classroom.
0: Absolutely. This, yes,
1: this is fantastic. Before we close today, I want to ask, are there any other insights that you can provide for about teacher retention, teacher preparation to share with our listeners today?
0: And to share with us so that we can implement it. In our- oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think for me, you know, I wear glasses, I wear prescription lenses that I have since high school. And I think about how I see the world when I don't have my glasses on and how it's not clear and it's kind of fuzzy and it doesn't give me the best information. But when I put on the right lens, I'm able to see things as they are and see things in a way that will help me interact with the world. And I think it's no different with teacher philosophy. This doesn't really come out a lot, so I'm glad you guys asked this. We have to really investigate what our students, teachers think about students. And I don't mean strictly from a diversity, equity, inclusion lens, Not, it's that, but it's more. Here's what I mean. When students have deficits or when students misbehave, what story do you tell about that child? And this is so important, I see this every day. If you think kids are out to get you, it's gonna ruin your year. It's gonna ruin your relationship with that child. If you don't understand this, you're gonna be in trouble. The student is not giving you a hard time, they're having a hard time. And once you know that, now it makes you, oh wait, they're having a hard Hard time, time. let me help. As opposed to let me punish, let me call home. It can't be about punishment. It has to, and so I'll I'll plug Alfie Cohn. He had a book out years ago called Punished by Rewards. Great book, talks about how punishment doesn't work. Now, he also argues that rewards are you know, also two sides of the same token. But anyway, Alfie Cohn talks about that. I also want to talk about Ross Green. He has a book out called Lost at School. If you haven't read that, it's a great resource. So he talks about how you, how you really orient yourself to what kids are doing in skill deficits. But it's a great book. So the big thing, ladies, I would just say we have to investigate what your teachers think about Student misbehavior. You know, there was a study that came out years ago, video evidence. They brought in teachers and they used eye tracking cameras. <clears throat> and so they put eye tracking cameras on each of the teachers and they had them watch a video. I believe they were five year uh, olds in a room. Now, what the researchers knew that the participants didn't know was that all the kids in a room were behaving the exact same way low level, some movement here and there, nothing big, right? Nothing that you would consider maladaptive. So the, the task of the participants was this. They said, I want you to look at these kids and I want you to mark down every instance of misbehavior. And so the results are just staggering. Wow. illustrates. So what happened was with eye tracking technology, the overwhelming pattern was people were looking at the African-American students and they were ascribing negative behavior that wasn't even there.
0: And that's how we get so many African American students in special education programs and in detention
1: and 100%. suspensions.
2: Yes. 100%. Yes. So that research just really is cautionary in that. And, and, and if I could ask those researchers, what, if I could talk to the participants, what story did you have in your mind about these kids? What informs your decision to say, let me just look here first? and not look somewhere else. Let me focus on the black child because I think they're gonna misbehave. And when they do something small, I make it bigger. See, all these things are super important. So in my school, predominantly low wealth, urban, high poverty, a lot of my kids are black and brown. So if you don't have the right story about my kids, you're gonna struggle.
1: And I wonder too, if if that research had been Posed in a positive way, look for engaged behavior Mm -hmm. rather than Mm -hmm. that negative attribution. What would have been marked on the paper?
0: What would that? Right, right. Yeah, so I I think that that's a great activity and a really good reflective practice for teachers. You have been a great philosopher today. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) this has been a wonderful engaging conversation it's it's helped me we talked to someone we talked about being 1% better we talked to someone about how do we always get 1% better which we're sh- striving to do you've definitely helped me get 1% better today
2: it's been my pleasure thank you for having me on and again i'm just honored to join this podcast when you first told me the title you had me at the title ladies just a wonderful platform and it really was a pleasure to be here
1: Thank Thank you so much. you. You have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to more conversations. Likewise. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson.
0: We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching.
1: We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing?
0: We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was
1: theory probably this time.
0: Uh, Practice.
1: Until next time, we're Dr. Amy.
0: And Dr. Joy.